Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Ian J. Tweedy. Especially thank you for, in these trying times, uh, looking at a podcast that you love and supporting it. That really, really makes me very, very happy. So thank you very much. And if you want to be like Ian, and I think you should be like Ian, you can go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and swear your undying loyalty to the original cast. All patrons get access to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast of the Movies, where we take a long-form deep dive into some of your favorite and least favorite musical movies of all time. This month we've got, well, let's see, what month is this? This is a Mar- March, April. It's April? It's April. Here we're doing, oh gosh, uh, Logan Caldwell Block and Caroline Tuberly talking about the uh, film, question mark, uh, musical version of Lost Horizon, which is just something, you can get it all on YouTube. It's free on YouTube. Go find it, watch it, become a patron, listen we're bl- we're flummoxed. It's amazing. So go to patreon.com slash original cast pod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to the Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums of people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a director, he's an actor, he's a lighting designer. It's Michael Innocente, everybody. Hello, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing very well under the circumstances, I guess, like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I think under the circumstances just sort of goes like... That's like, just going to be on a business card from now on. At the end of everything, right? Yes. It's like virtual goes in front of, in front of everything. <laughs> That's now. right, absolutely. And, uh, or, yeah. No, yeah. it's just, uh, under, but we're not talking about life right now. We're talking about the producers. I want to be a producer and sleep until half past two. I want to be a producer and say you, 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 not you. I want to be a producer where a tux on opening nights. I want to be a producer and see my name, Leo Bloom, in lights. Yes, the producers. So, how did the producers come? This now twenty-year-old musical. It struck me Jesus, today. I can't believe it's twenty. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Anyway, yeah, how did, how did it this... was April what? April two thousand one. April two thousand one. Yeah, it's a nineteen-year-old musical. Yes, um, we'll be kind to it. Yeah, yeah, a great. Oh film. God, it's like like three days ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as we the record. anniversary of wow. the show, which absolutely nobody celebrated, including mm. myself. Um, <laughs> how did the producers come into my life? Uh. I, from birth, had drilled into me, like every good, now I'm half Jewish, but since my mother is Jewish, and the best, I think, religious law of all time, and how someone traps you into a religion, is by saying, because your mother is Jewish, you are therefore Jewish. You Mm -hmm. have no choice, right? Right. So what comes with being a, a son of a Jewish mother and the son of an Italian Catholic, both sides of the family from New York, you get a lot of cat skills. You get mm-hmm. a lot of old vaudevillian style rhythms. A lot and, of borscht belt, a lot borscht of borscht belt yeah. kind of kind of humor. So the Marx Brothers, um, Peter Sellers and the Pink Panther, and Mel Brooks, along with other like the Stooges, all were part of my upbringing and drilled into us. I saw my first Mel Brooks movie when I was probably five or six. They showed me Blazing Saddles when I was seven or eight, probably a little young for it. I guess Mm -hmm. they figured something that I would appreciate it in some way. But um, Mel Brooks has been a huge influence in my entire life and everything. His 
style and what he meant to comedy just was always there for me. So like anybody else who has an art form that they really love, they follow what's coming up. People who love movies, I assume, are always looking out for the new release, hearing the new thing that their favorite director is, is coming up with or, or, or actor or writer. And I've heard on your podcast many times people saying, you know, I follow the trades, I follow all the rumors, the chat boards, all that stuff. Um, so when I was in high school, I'm guessing it was 97 or 98, I started to hear rumors that David Geffen had approached Mel Brooks because he had watched the producers one weekend on TV and said, this screams to me a musical, you should turn it into a musical. Um, I read that story and from the moment that I read that story, I just followed it as closely as I could. If I could find anything about a workshop or anything about rewrites or anything that was a, about uh, somebody who's being attached to the project, I kind of just ate it up. And then I prepped my parents. I was a senior in high school. I almost going to my college freshman year when I said the producers is opening up in April, 2001. My birthday is April 25th. It's opening on the 17th or 19th. This is mm -hmm. the gift I expect. <laughs> 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 and also, for those people who know me, Nathan Lane is another kind of, mm -hmm. uh, if people are always compared to certain people, Nathan Lane has been someone that I've been compared to all of my life. So the mixing of Mel Brooks and Nathan Lane, I was like, I'm going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I got the CD probably a couple months before the show premiered. Mm -hmm. uh, I got it whenever it dropped. And then I went and saw a Saturday matinee of the original cast of the producers. And um, I pretty much then just went and read everything I could about its making. There was a giant book oh, yeah. that came out about it. Um, there was an ensemble member. He was the, the lead tenor of Springtime for Hitler. He wrote a book about being in the ensemble, the audition process, and being with the show and the creation of the show. And I read that. Um, and that show has just always been part of my life. Anytime I need kind of a lift because it's such a buoyant, mm -hmm. ridiculously silly show. Sure. That uh, if you just kind of need to turn off your brain, that's a good one to go to. Yeah, this was the first mega Broadway hit I, that I was old enough to try to get tickets for. Like really? this was okay. because I was 20, almost 21 when the show came out. And I, I was, I've been alive for Rent. And like that was the that rent, I think, was the first like I, guess, I mean, Les Mis was technically the first mega hit of my life, but like I wasn't old enough to care. But like rent was the first show I was aware of as being a huge Broadway hit. And then this show was the first one where I was in college. I was going to be a senior and I was like, well, we could go see that. Like I could we could right. go. Like, I, I could make the choice. Let's try to get tickets to go see this. Yeah, tickets. we never got yeah. tickets because um, <laughs> we went up to New York. I remember vividly going up to New York. Uh, summer the next summer and um, this was a show that like it, it, it was like Hamilton and and Book of Mormon after it where it was impossible to get tickets and yes. everybody wanted to see it it had been huge in Chicago there was all this stuff about it coming in from Chicago and like so there was huge pre-buzz for it everybody wanted to see it and we went to TKTS sometime in the summer of 2002 and it was not on the board but um, we got tickets for Fosse because Ben Vereen was in it and he's an idol of mine. Yes. And we watching that show and it's a good show, but like uh, watching it, I don't remember what dance he was doing, but there was one point where they were doing a little soft show and he was kind of talking to the audience. He said something about everybody should applaud right now. So it was, it was cute and everybody <laughs> clapped and he goes, come on, I know you guys wanted to see the producers, but you're here tonight. Let's go. Absolutely. And it was a pretty good, 
pretty good bit. Well, we track the same thing because I mean, '96, I probably was a freshman or sophomore in high school, and Rent was the the first show that. Of course, everybody, if you were in the theater program in high school, it was the show. Oh, it was the show. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. played at every set build. It played at every mm-hmm. tech rehearsal on breaks. We went and saw it seven or eight times when it came through the National or, or Wolf Trap. We would do the lottery and we could sleep on the streets at the time. Uh, right. In those good old days. And then you're right. It, there doesn't, there didn't seem to be a juggernaut. Well, I don't know, because Lion King was 2000. Yeah, but not in the same way. Yes. I mean, Lion King was a big hit, but it wasn't the same thing where it was like it was impossible to get tickets. Like that was the thing of like, and if you had tickets, that was a thing. Because and my, my first thought when you said you're going to go see it for your birthday was like, oh, God, I wonder if the story ends with and they never got tickets. Because oh, that no, would no. totally have been made this, sense. But yeah, as they got soon tickets. as they released tickets for the show, I, I got them. Mm-hmm. Because, again, that was just by... I'm also by trade, and this has nothing to do when I was younger, but now I'm, I'm a researcher by trade, mm-hmm. by corporate. Um, and that kind of has always been part of my life is research. I mm-hmm. go into rabbit holes of rabbit holes for ridiculous reasons on subjects nobody would care about. And like a lot of the people who've been on your show, especially with something you're passionate about, I just constantly consumed. And these are when, when chat sites first started. I remember when Broadway yeah. World first started, all that chat, all those things I just consumed because it was about a subject that I was passionate about. So again, I was early on the train to get tickets to that show. Mm-hmm. It also changed the finances of Broadway. That was the very first show that set aside VIP tickets. Right. Uh, leave it to Mel Brooks to... Yeah. And he he does not apologize for what he's been asked many times. Do you see now that four hundred dollars a ticket, you know, is is too much, especially with the way Hamilton is now? And he said, no, people were willing to pay for it. It is a commercial show. Mm-hmm. If we could not sell that bank of tickets, we would not have done it. Now, is that fair? Listen, Mel Brooks, if anything, <laughs> is about finances in his work. Oh, sure. Always. Yes. I won't go into my people's background and why that's why that's well, the but case. he is even from a like, from a that. non from a non <laughs> leaving leaving heritage out of it. He's a man who's had his share of expensive flops. So you know, if I, I do not besmirch anyone, especially someone like that, who has had huge successes and huge failures being like Maybe what if we sold it for $400? Yeah, but I joke about it, but that is rooted in in the culture because it starts from vaudeville when when they used to have money taken from them when they were sleeping. When uh, television in the early days, they weren't getting residuals or anything for your show of shows. He carried that all the way through his career. So everything was about was about price and about money. So again, they did the calculation. That changed the finances of Broadway forever. Oh, yeah. I also remember on one of your podcasts talking about musical comedy specifically. I think, and I don't think it's just me thinking, I think many people have said this, is that the producers did bring in the rebirth of actual musical comedy. There is a tradition of the word musical comedy being over the whole kind of genre itself. Mm -hmm. But the actual comedy in musical, I mean... I was trying to think in the 90s, you had what, City of Angels mm-hmm. and Crazy for You in the early 90s were the really two big musical hits, which is funny because City of Angels has never been revived, which I don't understand. But I mean, it's a hysterical show. It is. Um, and I can't think of any show. I mean, you're going through, you think of, you know, 
the Jekyll and Hyde's, the Scarlet Pimpernels, you're thinking of the Titanics, you think of Steel Pier, you think of like all those kind of shows in the mid to late 90s that happened. And then you had Ragtime and Lion King, which I think brought in back in sort of the American epicness of musical theater, kind of mm-hmm. stole it away back from the, from the British after the 80s. And the producers, you wouldn't have Book of Mormon without their producers. I don't, you wouldn't have Spamalot without the producers. Oh, sure. Oh, you certainly have wouldn't Avenue have Spamalot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would, I don't think you would have Avenue Q without the, I don't think you would have any, something even going down to now something rotten. I don't think you'd have any of these meta kind of, let's put on a musical and make fun of musicals because of our love of musicals. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of that would have happened without the producers. Why I think it's not only important for its artistic value, which seems weird because it's the producers. Um, but it's also what we just talked about is its financial importance and, the, and kind of the threat of Broadway history. Sure. I'm just quickly scrolling through the Tony Awards while we, while we were talking here and looking for musical comedies. The only ones I came up with in the 90s were uh, the Will Rogers Follies and, and um, there was one more. Hold on. Let me see if I can get back to it. It was... And that was the year of Miss Saigon and Secret Garden, so... Right. <laughs> so Crazy for you, like you mentioned. Five guys named Mo. I mean, the, 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 there was a... Um, uh, certainly, and, and City of Angels, like you brought up, which is also written by fellow Your Show of Shows writer Larry Gelbart. Oh, so there is a definite, like... There's a connection there for certain, but it Absolutely. is, it is fun. I hadn't thought about that exactly. Cause I, I have often talked about that trend where musicals didn't get made unless they were self-aware. Um, and the producers is certainly the beginning of that. And there is a direct line you're right to Avenue Q and then to book of Mormon, like this sort of through line, but in terms of like organic musical comedy, I mean, this is not only making fun of musicals, it's also just funny. You know, yes. like it is, it is just a, because what I thought you were going to say and what I was going to, in the City of Angels vein, it is, it is a comedy. The story itself is a comedy. The movie's a comedy without the music and lyrics to it. It's, it's a very funny movie. The theatrical oh. element of it is tied in organically to the plot as they are producers of musicals. Of I course. mean, it's an absolute love letter to the industry. It's a love letter to the art form. I mean, Mel Brooks has said on many occasions that his love for musical theater specifically is unending. He was taken by his uncle at a very early age in the back of the balcony, what they could afford to see these musicals. He saw, he knew Cole Porter's shows. I mean, he was very well versed in, in the art form and the producer. And again, I think this is part of what David Geffen had seen in the producers was the obvious love for the material which is why when Mel Brooks pitched it to Jerry Herman to write the score, Jerry Herman said, right. You, you know, he played high anxiety. He played, um, you know, all the other kind of the Mel Brooks songs that he has in his canon and said, you, you can write, you should do this. Yeah. And it totally, (laughs) yeah. And it totally, the score is so reminiscent of those RKO, RKO, um, Oh yeah. Shows of the, of the movies of the thirties and the forties. I mean, Doug Biesterman, who's the orchestrator on it really kind of captured that. Um, and Doug Beesterman, who, you know, did Fosse, as you spoke of, did Susical, yeah. but he also did Big. He also did um, the revival of Damn Yankees. He did Thoroughly Modern Millie. So here's a guy who who is well-versed in that style as well. But the whole, the, and all of that, when you watch the show, you were absolutely right. The number one rule of comedy, no matter what the subject matter is, it has to be funny. Mm-hmm. It has to be funny. I will be very interested to see if this ever gets a revival. I know there's a local DC company that's going to be doing it whenever 
things yeah, open whenever up. Whenever things get done again. I will be very interested to see how it plays now uh, two decades later. Because... Yes, which I... I know. I want to hang on. Put a pin in that one. Sure, of course. You're 100 right. Yes, because <laughs> that was that's a big the most thought. fascinating part of this. That was today. a big thought I was having when listening to this again, being like, "Oh, this is 20 years old, and it mm-hmm. shows in certain moments." Yeah. But before we go much further, sure. for people who do not know, do you think you could summarize the uh, the plot of the producers? Oh, sure. Why not? Patrick? Why not? Yeah. Okay, so the producers. Um, the show starts out with Max Bialystok. Always got to have some sort of. Jewish food in the name. It's yep. got to be funny. So mm-hmm. Bialystok. Um, he just opened a new production, a new musical called Funny Boy, which is the musical version of Hamlet. Uh, lo and behold, it bombs and he gets mm-hmm. terrible reviews. So he's kind of depressed in his office, um, thinking of what to do next. He's kind of, you know, flirting with this old lady to get a check written out to cash to him for his next show. That's what he's named. The, the name of the play is Cash. <laughs> These are some great old great jokes. vaudevillian jokes. Great jokes. <laughs> some great never classic aged. jokes. Yes, um, and of course Leo Bloom, who's an accountant, comes in uh, to to do his books. He starts doing his books, and he notices, oh, you've raised a hundred thousand dollars for this play, but you only spent ninety eight thousand, so you pocketed two. Sort of illegal, mm-hmm. but if you do this on a huge scale, you can actually make more money with a flop than a hit which is sort of the, the kind of the thing that launches the plot. Max jumps right up, sits up in his chair and does that again. And his wheels start turning. And so he starts to pull in Leo to help him be kind of the intellect behind this, this plan. Uh, and he's appealing to Leo's urge to be a producer, which is, of course, a wonderful moment to do an I Want song with yeah. dancing and great costumes. Absolutely. Right in the beginning of the first act. So the two of them have formed now a bond over this, over this, uh, this plot point, and they decide we need to find the worst play ever. So they spend a whole night reading a play, and they finally find it. It's called, now let's see if I get the title right. It is Springtime for Hitler, a summer romp with Adolf Hitler, Hitler and... Uh, Ava Braun. And Ava Braun, yeah. Yeah, Ava Braun, okay. Oh, yeah. So they go, ah, obviously, this is going to bomb. So mm-hmm. they set into motion a plan, all these steps. I believe there are five steps. I can't, I don't remember yeah. them all, but there are five steps in which they have to find the playwright. They got to get the play. Then they have to hire the worst director in town. Uh, they have to find the lead actor to play the worst character that's ever been written. They have to raise the money from all the little old ladies that Max has. Uh, has uh, raised money from all those years for his mm-hmm. other flops and let it bomb. And that sets into a whole kind of uh, different subplots. They meet Ula who, uh, who, who comes in up to be an assistant. And there's a lot of, a lot of great Swedish jokes. Oh my God. <laughs> 20 years old folks. Um, and then uh so this all culminates in the actual performance of Spring Fine, Springtime for Hitler after they meet Roger Elizabeth Debris, the worst director in uh, town, right. uh, Franz Liebken, who's the, who's the playwright. Um, and uh, one of my favorite characters is Carmen Ghia, who's, uh, who's <laughs> who is Roger Elizabeth Debris' uh, assistant and just right. 
brilliantly played by Roger Barton. Roger Barton, right, yes. Um, so we get to the big springtime for Hitler song in the second act. The audience doesn't know what to make of it at first, but then they start laughing. They turn it into a comedy. They think it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. Lo and behold, it's a hit. Of course, this is a problem for our two heroes. They get arrested. They get thrown in jail, Patrick, where they learn lessons of friendship and right. how to be honest. And then they produce <laughs> another musical. musical. Right. Um, prisoners in prisoners love. in love. Yeah. Of which that, of course, is a big hit. They get released out of Sing Sing, and they go on to have a happy ending. Right. So, in a, a nutshell, musical. yeah, that that is that is the producers. I thought I kept having watching listening to this, which is, I don't know. So Mel Brooks has never been, um, tactful. Subtle. Uh, subtle. And certainly he's never been subtle. No. He is a, I think as Gene Wilder described him as somebody just throwing handfuls of darts at a board. And they don't all hit. But when they do, it's amazing. But they don't all hit the board. And he's everything he's ever done is like that. Every single movie, every single show, everything is, is like that to me. But listening to this recording, I was struck by, and when you talk about it being revived, I don't know that the number of gay jokes in this thing, the sheer... Oh, it's, it's not, not even, even just the gay jokes. <laughs> it's not even like... It's not even the the tone of the joke that sort of struck me after a while. It was just the volume, the sheer volume of... Forget the fact that everybody knows there's a song in this show called Keep It Gay, right. which seems very fun to me as, you know, obviously this is... We are two straight white men talking right now. No matter what you do on the stage, keep it light, keep it bright, keep it gay. Whether it's murder, mayhem, or rage, don't complain, it's a pain, keep it gay. People want laughter when they see a show. The last thing they're after is a litany of woe. A happy ending will pep up your play. Oedipus won't bomb if he winds up with mom. Keep it gay. Keep it gay. Keep it gay. The thing with this style of comedy that I wonder if it'll still work is that his comedy has always been based and Ricky Gervais is still like this. Larry David is still like this, where the joke is about laughing at the person who's delivering the insane, mm -hmm. dumb, um, totally un inappropriate comment. It's the mm -hmm. Archie Bunker style of comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Where you, this person will say completely racist, misogynistic, homophobic things but you laugh because of the absurdity and the stupidity of the person saying it. It's Homer mm -hmm. Simpson. It's Peter Griffin. That style of comedy is really starting to wane now. And audiences, I think, are either having less patience for that type of humor because it seems like it's punching down, which in some cases, mm -hmm. delivery, and if it's not funny, it is. It's just mean and insulting. But I don't know if there's an appetite for that style of humor anymore. Now, someone like Ricky Gervais is really making a career of saying, no, I'm going to keep this form of comedy alive, where I'm going to say really ridiculously on the surface insulting things because you're supposed to laugh at me, the idiot, mm -hmm. because of what I'm saying. That's why I'm interested to see this revived if audiences still really care about or are willing to go along with that 
style. I mean, well, it is there is a there is a problem we have encountered with irony that when you have, and it is the product of of who we are as a, to me as a society. The fact that like the reason that irony having a character who is loud and abrasive and racist or whatever, whatever is you want to put after that, who says dumb things and what we're laughing at is the fact that they're not funny um, or that they're not clever. They're not, you know, they're the idiot, like you say, which is totally true. I mean, everything you just said is completely correct. That is a model of comedy that thrived. In as the is most everything I say in life. Is there you go. Thanks. We'll, just, yeah, we'll put that, we'll put that in the I want to make sure that's I'll up that front in the, in the podcast. Yes, yes. That's the very first yes. thing that's said. Thank you. There you go. But um, the problem becomes that when, Irony becomes becomes an issue when the reality is more extreme than the comedy. And that has not just been true in the last four years. That has been true since just around the time this musical like kicked off. And and the 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 sort of <laughs> the characters who we thought were like, oh, just resigned to television or just resigned to your neighborhood suddenly turned up on TV and running things. <laughs> yes. And it becomes yes. our set of committees. Right. Well, exactly right. And you yeah. suddenly go, it's just not funny because what's really happening is weirder than this. And so for the comedy to be more extreme, it has to be, uh, you know, it just doesn't work. It doesn't line up. The thing that I was going to say though, about like the general, the, the the tone of the musical is that I do not think that Roger Debris is in the movie. He is the butt of jokes. The fact that he is gay and has this sort of like fawnish assistant is a joke yes. and it doesn't age well. No, but is Mr. Belvedere, which is fun yes. um, <laughs> in the role. Yes. He's also not in the movie very much. So it no. is like, it, it isn't, it isn't relentless. I will say having seen the original, what absolutely made it, come over i think as was most most shows was gary beach you could oh, yeah. you could not not like him yeah i mean when you're talking about the springtime for hitler midsection comes out and he basically does liza at the palace and also but the whole thing about roger debris philosophy in the song keep it gay which is but the the bit of it is that it should be light and it should be fun yes and the 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 keep it gay kind of becomes a double entendre and and it's both original meaning and it's 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 connotational meaning that we that that it has the dominant meaning that it has right it's gonna bomb if oedipus uh, right doesn't he doesn't end up with mom mom. yeah which is a good line um and it but what it does is that what's interesting about that song is that then when he goes on and is Hitler, he just takes that approach. He's just fun with it. Yes. And it's that that makes both Hitler seem absurd and the show work like and the show within the show work. That he's taking the right approach to it. This material that this author has written is so awful that if we lighten <laughs> it up and treat it, it becomes like the room. It's hilarious how bad this is. Isn't this so much fun? And aren't we laughing at Hitler? Which of course, you know, is not what the author intended, but then there no, we are. No, actually it well not not the author of yes the author no, no, the author yes. i'm sorry when i say the author i mean i don't mean mel brooks i mean because the author that was of the, the, yes that, would that be was weird the if other thing that. that was the other thing seeing the show in new york with my mother mm-hmm. so comedy is really in my family um uh i don't want to say a big deal but it was very important early on mm-hmm. 
as you could probably tell in this interview, every, you know, I speak over everybody. If I can get a quip out, no matter how dumb it is, I will. Because at the dinner table, if you didn't, you didn't survive. Right. And my whole family is like that. Um, and the interesting thing is, like, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, and that affected everything on, on my mom's side of the family, obviously, for, for, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. She found everything in the show funny, but when they came out and did springtime for Hitler, she stopped laughing. Understandably. Mm -hmm. I know other people who also have the same background that I do where that to them was the most important part of the show. Mm -hmm. And I have always tried to tell my mom, I think that's the most important thing in the show because it's exactly what Mel Brooks was always trying to do. And the producers, and to be or not to be, any time that he dressed up as Hitler and went after Hitler, he always said... History of the World Part One. History of the World Part One. You're never going to be Hitler on rhetoric. Right. On better speeches and and brainwashing and motivating people. The only way you take down Hitler is by making fun of him and mocking him. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't laugh at it and she still can't see it that way. But what I see it is the taking down of a symbol of fear and hatred. Mm-hmm. So while I, I actually put more stock in that being important than how the jokes have aged and mm-hmm. how I think the characters are actually treated differently than the movie in a, in a good way. Oh, yeah. like, and like you said, but I think that this show should continue to be the show because it, if anything, no matter you have to look back. There is one line in particular in the second act that I can't believe Thomas Meehan or Susan didn't be like, we don't need the black Irish joke. Right. We don't need the, and, and if you haven't seen the show as a visual bit as well, mm-hmm. it's not needed. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is, this is not, you know, since you show shows, right. This, you know, we can let right. that go. But the importance of this show is to say that you can through humor, through comedy, through satire, take down huge symbols of fear. Uh, huge symbols of 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 evil, and that's why I think the show still should be revived. I'm just hoping people approach it in that spirit. Because Mel Brooks is not a baby boomer. I mean, this is another big thing. Like, <laughs> the man served in World he's War II. He's not a baby. He's a member of the Greatest Generation. He was. Yes. Like, I don't know. He was 70 yeah. when the show came out. Like he was. Yeah. He was an old man he, when he he's did He's been this. 65 once since he was for born. his entire life. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. never looked young. Um, but he. So the the his his comedy does have a point of view. Like you say, it does have, uh, it is not nihilistic. It is not, it is very pointed. It is pointed and its target is, is self-seriousness and its target is authoritarianism. Yeah. Arrogance. Um, arrogance. Absolutely. And the musical, even more than the movie. I mean, the musical is really going after, you know, like it, it has, its heroes are, are bizarre and dubious and oh, yeah. questionable people who grow and change and move, which is why the ending of the musical is so different than the movie, where th- the movie has kind of a flat ending, to be entirely honest. Like, I, like, yes. I love the movie. The ending yes. is very flat. Yes, of um, And the movie adds this extra element of the love triangle and then the run and then, you know, Leo going full bad guy on Max, which then it go, turns Max around a little bit to be like, oh God, I really like, I did really hurt people at some point. And then he comes back and they have a bond and it really does 
work. They changed each other, all that great stuff. Um, so in a lot of ways, the musical has a much better structure to it than the movie does, which is a funny, like, funny thing to say. I like the fact that he brought in Thomas Meehan to work on the book and to really like be like, all right, if we're going to do this, like, I need someone to work with. He's not going to do it all by himself. He was smart. Was he, he smart. Knew, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew he needed to get people who knew the, the difference of the art forms of where he was working. He needed to get... Um, you know, the Glenn Kelly in there to do the music arrangements because he had no, I mean, he was humming into a tape recorder. So, I mean, he, he, oh, needed, sure. he needed the, the tools, the experts, the veterans to come in and, and to shape this for him. But yes, I think Thomas Meehan is the unsung hero of this show. He knew oh, gosh, exactly yeah. how to structure it and the pace of jokes that Mel Brooks is used to writing. Tom, I think, I think Thomas Meehan really, I, I was going to feel so, <laughs> I was going to feel so, speaking of arrogance, being like, so Tommy came in, Tommy sat down and he <laughs> wrote a, it. Is this a I problem of having like me watch so many documentaries about these things yes, and that's I how know. they talk about each other? And then for a second, my brain went, do I say Mr. Meehan? So <laughs> I seem humble, but then that would seem ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm just going to say his that full name be, the entire Thomas time. Meehan, that's Thomas Meehan. Yeah, yeah. Multiple He's, Tony Award winner, Thomas yes, Meehan. Yes, Hairspray, all the, all the greats. Oh, yeah. he, Annie. He, Annie, oh. Annie, of course. Yeah. Annie Warbucks. No. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, I mean, he was, he knew how to contain Mel Brooks's brain within that show. Um, and I, I, the question of age, I think, is personal taste. Again, I will never tire of watching the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. I can't get Christina, I can't get my wife to watch an entire one. She hates vaudeville <laughs> and i have this undying love for that style the presentational just you live and die by how hard that joke lands mm-hmm. and you keep going the speed of it um the wordplay the kind of physical comedy that's involved in it whereas comedy now in movies and television is a little bit more laid back it's a little bit more surreal but it's more laid back it's more realistic and that's an incredibly difficult style to do but i think it's even harder to be out front in face pitching jokes because you go big there's nothing to hide behind. So mm-hmm. it better be good with whatever you're going big with. Um, so it is definitely, like you said, a style that, I mean, Book of Mormon, I don't know. Producers might survive as long as Book of Mormon's around. I think Book of Mormon is even more insulting in a lot of regards. It regard- is, but in a funny way, Book of Mormon takes on a perennial, um, first of all, it takes on two opponents. It takes on one opponent who won't fight back two opponents who won't fight back it takes on god and the mormons right and like god won't fight back because he doesn't have to and uh the mormons don't fight back because they're smart like it's right. one of the smartest things in the world that the, the mormons yeah. advertise yeah. in every book of mormon playbill hey the nice is the brand i mean they're, they're be just, that nice that covers oh, everything yeah. It, yeah yeah covers a lot of things if you yes read about it. but yeah. um the attacking such uh, mainly it's its target is organized religion mormonism is simply the the lens through which it it projects that and so in a way book of mormon has it both ways it is very broad and very big and offensive like you say and and like enlarge but it's attacking it's attacking something that is everlasting and huge and also sort of like non-specific since it's attacking religion writ large it's not attacking jesus it's attacking religion and so you can you can move in those waters it's a very clever idea to sort of be able well, to, to have the, it both ways the the show is also the larger point of book of mormon is the is the is is the belief in hope 
mm-hmm. and no matter what you believe, doing it in a loving way, which seems to be a more mass appealing outcome and also, of a moral value than the producers are like, well, this is about friendship and don't rip people off. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it also, the, at the end, the Book of Mormon does not come down as religion is bad. No, it's just know what you're what doing. It starts its own religion. You it's know, just, so it's, it, it, yeah, it, yeah it, it has a, it has a much more sort of like open-ended kind of conclusion to it. And like, you're right. Yes. Book of producers also producers kind of shoehorns its resolution into the second act. And it's, oh, it's totally it's, fine. It's, it has no point. Yeah. It doesn't. <laughs> I, here's the thread it, again. Yeah. Avenue Q can be very crass, right? Producers can be very crass. Book of Mormon can be very crass the common thread that will always matter in these things is that they have to be funny. Mm -hmm. They have to have a, a mass appeal of comedy, meaning enough people will laugh at it for it to stay. If it's not funny, it should and will die. There is an amazing documentary on Netflix that I I wish I could recall the actual name of it. Maybe it's only a joke. It's something, a title along that way, which is a documentary about a woman who does uh, speeches at schools because she's a Holocaust survivor and how humor has gotten her through the pain of of the Holocaust. And she makes Holocaust jokes and they interview Sarah Silverman, Mel Brooks. They they interview a lot of comedians about what is taboo and what what is allowed to be, you know, joke about. And time and time again, Mel Brooks says, I wouldn't touch, I wouldn't directly touch the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Would I make a joke around the edge of it? Maybe, but it's got to be funny. And someone asks, you know, how do you know what's funny? He goes, you just know it's funny. It's an, yeah. unfortunate, it's an unfortunate mystery of really what is funny because of people's tastes. But as we can see, there are universal things that are funny. Well, but so funny. what's funny though also about Mel Brooks to me and his style, how his humor ages, I, it, it's fun. Someone was just commenting. I, I was listening to a podcast or, or something about where somebody commented on they liked the writing of whatever they were listening to because it was funny, but not like Neil Simon is funny. And they were using that as a derisive comment, saying that Neil Simon is set up punchline. And what was funny to me is thinking about that is I have great affection for Neil Simon's writing. I did a lot of his plays in high school, like I think everybody our age kind of did. Yes. Um, and have seen a lot of his plays done by high schools to great, great acclaim. But what is funny is I don't think his work is aging as well as Mel Brooks's work is, which is not something I think that people would have ever predicted in in the 70s or the 80s when these two people were, were you know, were or even the 90s. It, his Mel Brooks's humor because it is so large, like you say, so it has that appeal to also not only the old, but the young, it also has a timelessness to it because you like even the people, you know, the vaudeville routines that he comes out of and the Marx brothers and things come out of older comedy than that. It is all building on this older style. That is the situation is so crazy. That's what's really, and then the jokes support the situation. Neil Simon presents very average situations and then he has very witty people. It's like Noel Coward come on stage and say hilarious things. And they're hilarious. Like The Odd Couple is objectively a hilarious show. But he is a not as situational comedian. And that's the comedian that that tends to be timeless for me. And and, and also that's the shift in comedy. I mean, you look at uh, Christopher Guest and Judd Apatow. Mm Mm-hmm. All of their comedies are based solely on the the absurdity of the situation and what happens out of that. 
do yeah. great jokes get ripped off? Of course. Oh, sure. Um, but it is born out of the reality of the situation as you discussed. It's reversed in the world of your show of show writers. It's right. we build the joke first and then build everything else around it. To me, the most recent version of the Borscht Belt vaudeville outstanding joke writing is Oh Hello. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mulaney and Kroll. Yeah. I could watch, I have watched that. John Mulaney in general lives yeah. in that style. He's yeah. in that style. And Nick Kroll is, as well. Yes. But those two specific characters in the writing in Oh Hello could have been a Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks. Oh, absolutely. The it's the two, it's the 2000 year old man. It's, it's virtually the same bit, except they're both the 2000 year old. And man. why it's funny is that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, and again, it's the, the strength of the writing. It's not just about mass appeal. Again, it's about the presentational style of it. It's about the in-your-face saying, I, da- I am going to make a bet, and I dare you, you're going to laugh at this. And it's kind of that rush of, well, will they or not? Mm-hmm. Does that exist much anymore? You see it in sketch comedy because that's really kind of the only way SNL can survive. I mean, sketch comedy is sketch comedy. You need that kind of style because it's all about you know, we're talking about that kind of style with Neil Simon. That's where it survives is sketch comedy. It, it is about. And online. Jokes. Yeah, it evolves. It, it, it survives. In, and as in far pockets. as Neil yeah. Simon not aging well as Mel Brooks, I think because it's solely because the edge and the things that Mel Brooks attacks are constant in life. The authority, the, the, the attack. But also as a point of view. I mean, it's the thing. Yes. Like, it's, it's even his like worst movie well that's probably dracula dead and loving it so i'm trying oh his, yeah his no, second I, worst movie he, what would be his second worst because <laughs> that movie's terrible um, life stinks is pretty bad but sweet yeah. in moments high anxiety moments. no no that's a that's a good one is it okay um but I, I mean, a lot of people don't like 12 chairs. I love, oh, I love the 12, 12 chairs. chairs. Oh, no, no. 12 and a chairs. lot of people don't like to be or not to be, which I don't understand. I think that's hysterical. Yeah, um, I like to be or not to be. I, I, it, yes. So, but in any event, I, I think that the thing, a consistent run about Neil Simon is that like, kind of like Woody Allen, he made the same, he wrote the same play over and over and over yeah. again. Like Woody Allen wrote the same movie over and over again. Like Hitchcock made the same movie over and yes. over and over again. It is... Uh, which I only thought of because we said high anxiety. The, um, but it, it's that thing of like, Mel Brooks certainly repeated himself a lot in, in his approach to the material, as anyone does. But his, his point of view sort of remained unchanged in that at the heart of what he did was a, an attack on authority, an attack on um, things that are silly, and a genuine love for people behind it all. I feel that there's a darkness and a cynicism and a nihilism behind a lot of Woody Allen and Neil Simon's stuff um, that ultimately ends up being like, listen, nothing's a point, so we might as well love each other. And that just doesn't quite, well, well that's Neil Simon, Woody Allen wouldn't say that, but like there's right. a, there's a, there's there's something about that where once the jokes age out, you know, once the influence hits and once the jokes age out, 
I'm not saying all of Neil Simon's work has not has not aged well, but there's a like Neil Simon had like a play a year for a really long stretch of time. Yeah, well, he had like four on Broadway at one at one point. Yeah, and one ton. He was one of the biggest playwright of the of the later hit part of the 20th century. And, and, and like you said, derided, which I think is yeah. totally unfair. And I yeah. think people who do that do not understand the context of his rise on Broadway and what those shows allowed uh, to happen on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Stephen yeah, totally. Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim rightfully gets the credit for really bringing neuroses, the study of neuroses, into at least musical theater. Neil Simon, even though if some people think it's milk toast, he brought the discovery of of neuroses and that's and that type of mentality. And his yeah, and his place. work in the late sixties and early seventies is all worth repeating for that yes. reason alone. Yeah. It, it's when you get into the eighties and stuff that I think he gets to be he, like a lot of people did in the eighties becomes it problematic. Well, the other thing is is that I think you've seen a lot of bad Neil Simon done. Oh yeah. So and like anything that's done poorly, whether it's a band that you know or any any piece of art that is repeated or that is allowed to be repeated and done poorly takes on a whole different kind of uh, look. I do have a question for you though. Oh God. As someone who's expounded upon in this podcast many times about, you know, the intelligence of, of, of a score Mm -hmm. when this came out, Mm -hmm. I mean, why all the reviews wildly hit, you know, Mm -hmm. this is the best thing that's come out in decades. It's the funniest show, but across the board hit the score. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is because of how the score was created because he literally hummed or whistled it into a tape recorder and gave it to Glenn Kelly and said, you know, put right. into this. write this down. <laughs> Do you, as someone who like a lot of your guests and myself who, you know, are obviously massive fans of this art form and, and we love to think of our composers slaving away at the piano or on their yellow legal pad writing in long form, you know, right writing away from the piano that their scores and how they, the motifs and how everything. I actually think there's a great joy in the simplicity of how that was created. I, well, I, so I, my response to that would be, I think that if what you're looking for is a super brilliant score in quotation marks, like the, the capital S capital C O R E score, right. you're not going to find it in the show, but also you, I wouldn't want to. The, the score of this show works perfectly for this show. Right, which is, is why I think it's a great score. It's a great score. No, I, did, I think that if, if, if Sondheim had written this score, it would sound a lot like this. It would be, right. he would write an older vaudeville, big band, 50s musical style score because that's what this show calls for. To, because the, the, the sort of like, it, it, quote unquote intelligence of a, of a more complicated score, it wouldn't make any sense in this show. It, it, it no. doesn't, it, it, and in fact, there are several moments re-listening to it that I had forgotten about of tremendous musical invention. The big one that struck me this time was the recap that Nathan Lang does from prison is super clever and very well set up. How did it begin? He walked into my office with his cockamamie scheme. You can make more money with a flop than with a hit. We can do it. We can do it. I can't do it. We can do it. I can't do it. Goodbye, Max. Lord, I want that money. I'm back, Max. 
Come on, Leo, we can do it. Step one, find the plane. See it, smell it, touch it, kiss it. Hello, Mr. Liebkin. Guten Tag, hop, hop, guten Tag, hop, hop. Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. Guten Tag, hop, hop, guten Tag, hop, hop. Step two, hire the director. Keep it gay, keep it gay. Keep it two, three, kick, turn, 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 kick, turn. Oola, wah, 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 wah. Step three, raise the money. Along, gang, Bialy. Intermission. Step four, hire all the actors. It's very funny. It's organic to the system, to the show, and it is incredibly musically inventive the way he hops up and down and back and forth. So this show, the score does have moments of, of objective excellence. It, it is not though a show or a book that you don't, the, the score also blends in and out of the book so beautifully, which is something I really always appreciate. And again, and I don't, you're making yeah. all the arguments of why I think it's a brilliant score. I know. I agree. I think it is a brilliant, though. My, so listen, you know, never, never, think, never use, think, never use one word when twelve will do. I, I, I think but, people of our ilk. Yeah, and I use that term. Use the word ilk. Yeah, no, we're getting how you want. <laughs> I take umbrage with your ilk, sir. I, I think we hear dissonance. I think we hear atonal music. I think we hear changes in tempo and in key every three three measures and go brilliant. Which is, I'm not arguing that that's not the truth in a lot of cases. I think craft is the most important thing with with any of this. I have so many guilty pleasure musicals basically because they're well-crafted. I can't remember if it was you or someone who said you didn't like the show. And this is such a tangent. I love Legally Blonde. I hate Legally Blonde. That was me. (laughs) I think it is a perfectly crafted score. I believe all the way through the lyrics, the melody writing, and the orchestrations, and the vocal arrangements, it is incredibly well-crafted, which is why I like it, because the craft is so good. Whether you think it's too bubbly, whether you think the subject matter shouldn't matter, whether you think it deviates in certain sections, and oh, we're just throwing this in because this is a pop culture reference, or the sound of the show is going that way, I think from, from top to tails, it is crafted impeccably for that show. I think the key to any great musical is whether the score is crafted perfectly for that show. An argument that, of course, Stephen Sondheim makes every chance he can. Mm-hmm. Lyrics 100%. And it has yeah. to be singularly crafted for that show. Mm-hmm. I think the producers has a brilliant score because it's singularly crafted brilliantly for that show. So I would agree with you that Legally Blonde score perfectly fits the show. I think it's a terrible show. It's my sort of response to that. Like, you're right. The score fits the material. I take umbrage more, gosh, I've said it now four times, <laughs> with the, if I reference Judy Kuhn, the drinking game will be There complete. we go, let's do it. Um, it is with the fact that for a ostensible romantic musical comedy, it's three and a half hours long and insistent and insipid. And this show is knows exactly what it is, takes itself the exact right amount of serious and the exact right amount of unserious. It never panders. It never treats its characters with disrespect. Um, and again, speaking from a place of privilege, if you disagree, I would like, I would like to know because I'm very interested to know what, what people think about the Gary Beach's performance in this specifically. Um, 
But I think that Legally Blonde is rather dismissive of its characters and disrespectful to its situations and lives very moment to moment. Whereas this show is a crafted score and book working organically together. And I think as a result, the show is phenomenal. You could take, if you, the other problem you have with like, removing the score from a musical is like removing. I, I don't know I, I can't think of a, a a way to do it in a play that would would work the same but it's it's like removing uh the words from the, the, that doesn't make any sense i was gonna say something dumb and i'm gonna edit it out because you can't remove the score from the show it's it's silly to me that there's a separate tony award for that and it because it, it should be the writing of the musical it should be book music and lyrics all those things are are a written document they all should be just like in the fact that it drives me nuts that the composer of musicals when you go buy scripts in the store isn't listed usually on the side of the of the spine right it's the book writer right and and maybe the lyricist if they're two separate people and then like you know it, it, and that drives me nuts because the writing of the musical is the book book music and lyrics that's what makes it a musical right. so removing so and part because we can take the songs and put them on a commodity and sell them. And then I can have a podcast about it. It's very easy for us to remove the score from the show and talk well, about it's a good show with a good score or a good show with a bad score. To me, it's a good show or a bad show. It's easy for us to talk about that. But for, I think a lot of listeners, including myself, because I grew up, you know, I didn't grow up in New York mm. and I didn't see my first Broadway show until I was 15 or 16 uh, in New York. Mm -hmm. on, in New York, yeah, yeah. On Broadway. Cast albums were the way in, right? Oh, sure. So Me too. I yeah. can remove a lot of scores from shows. I, in fact... Yeah, well, you love, can... Uh, I've loved a lot of scores that when I sit in the theater and I go, oh, oh that's what's involved? Yeah. Uh, well, and that's why, the, I mean, the, 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 the wisdom of, of, of the Broadway system is that like a, sh a, a bad score with a good book can run, but a good score with a bad book can't. There's something about a show needs to be a unified set. But to the point is, I can separate scores easily and producers. Oh, we can. Yeah, it's I very easy. I care less. I mean, when I got this that. This is why we have jukebox musicals. Of course. Like, this is why this is a thing. Yeah, and you again, can do it. As, the, as long as they're well-crafted. All right. I well, just don't think you should is my <laughs> And also, I do. But here's the thing is, I, I do it too. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like you know, I have discovered the secret and you can too for 1995. What I'm saying is that like, it is, it is a, and I think what you said about craft is absolutely right. It is a, the judgment of a score should be in how it works in the piece as a whole. Does it reinforce, just like dialogue. Maybe that was the example I was trying to come up with earlier, that it's like removing right. the dialogue from a play script. It is like the dialogue to me in a good play has a certain musicality to it. It has a rhythm to it. It, it, it entertains, but it also has to reinforce what's going on and or be funny or be sad or be whatever kind of play you're writing. One, it doesn't make sense to write the same kind of dialogue for every single thing you write, just like it doesn't make sense to write the same kind of score for every kind of thing you write. A good example uh, of, of great scores for me is a, a show that was out the same year as this producers that we also have talked about on this podcast, which is The Full Monty. David Yazbek I was in there. Write scores. There you go. Write scores that suit the material he's writing. And he can write a straightforward musical comedy, great banging score like Full Monty, or he can write a complicated, moving, lyrical tonal complex score like the band's visit what's your favorite song though in this show in the producers yes <sighs> favorite song 
It's weird. I think the opening number is my favorite. Not because it's a song. It's because of the jokes in the song. Well, you mean, do you mean opening night or do you mean the King? No, of no, no, no. I'm sorry. The, the, let's opening is, is, is a solid opening sets right. the scene. Let's go. Mm-hmm. But um, you mean the King of back, Broadway? Yeah. yeah. King. I think the jokes interspersed in that number does exactly mm-hmm. what a great opening number, even though it's not the opening number. It is it's kind of like the opening the night opening is a is a, is is a, a scene setter. Yes, yeah, like, yeah. Such reviews. How dare they insult me in this manner? How quickly they forget I am Max Bialystok, the first producer ever to do summer stock in the winter. Once he was the king. You've all heard of theater in the round? You're looking at the man who invented theater in the square. Nobody had a good seat. I've spent my entire life in the theater. I was a protege of the great Boris Tomaszewski. Yes, he taught me everything I know. I'll never forget. He he turned to me on his deathbed and said, Maxima, Alle Menschen müssen machen. Hayden to Gagatzen Kaschen Pischen Pippikachen. What does that mean? Who knows? I don't speak Yiddish. Strangely enough, neither did he. Michael, thank you so much. This was this so was much fun. This yes, is a Patrick. blast. Where can people follow you and find out what you're doing when the world returns? Uh, well, when the world returns, I'll still be doing what I'm doing now, which is trying to be the best father and castable husband that I can be. There you go. Yeah. Love it. Love it so much. And go back and listen to Christina's episode on a man of no importance. To get oh, full, if you want, if, yeah, you full will. full sonic experience. You here. will have no idea why <laughs> she chose to spend a second with me if you listen to that. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at Unknown Penguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Michael Innocente for coming down and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. I've got you to lean on. We've got you. To-